please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15 this morning. You can find it on page 924 in the Pew Bibles. Now, if you know me any at any at all, you quickly learn that I, I love church history. Um, you know, had I been a wealthier man, I would have got a PhD in historical theology, but at last I'm not, and so here we are. Um, but one of the things I love most about church history is reading biographies, particularly biographies of Christian missionaries. Um, our son, Will, his name is William Judson. He's named after three heroes of ours in the Christian faith. There's William Wilberforce, Adniram Judson, and William Carey. And I'm particularly fond of William Carey, the father of modern missions. Um, I got to, I, I've had the privilege of, of going and serving on mission trips in uh, Kolkata and Sierampur. So I got to visit his home and see the college that he started and, and see the churches where he preached. Uh, in fact, uh, Matt Reynolds, who's with Pioneers, one of the missionaries that we support, he regularly preaches at William Carey Baptist Church in Kolkata, India, which ironically is the very church where Adniram Judson was baptized. And so there's a rich history there. Now, William Carey didn't start out his life thinking that he was going to start some kind of missionary movement. Um, nor, nor did he simply fall into it as he sort of passively followed the Spirit's promptings. His parents were weavers. He was trained to be a cobbler, a shoe repairman. It's not a very exciting trade. In fact, it's quite smelly. But Carey was a man of deep interest. He loved botany and learned much as he could about it. In his spare time, he taught himself Greek. He was recognized as such a gifted learner that despite not having the right credentials, uh, actually made him a, a schoolmaster at a nearby village, and there soon after he became a Baptist pastor. It was then that he began reading biographies. He read the biographies of David Brainerd and John Eliot, American missionaries to the American Indians, and, and it captured his soul when he thought about these men who were taking the gospel to those who did not know him. He read the, the journals of Captain James Cook, the Brit, Britain's pioneering navigator, and as he poured over this sea captain's journal, he came to the realization that the people in places like Eromanga that Cook visited in the South Seas would never hear the gospel. And that thought consumed him. He began reading everything that he could find about distant lands and strange peoples. He, he mapped them out on this huge leather hide that he kept in his workplace. He spent hours in the Word and in prayer as he contemplated the call to make disciples of all nations. And as one biographer wrote of him, from his cottage window, he looked out unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And it was from that window that the Lord directed his heart towards India. But just because... William Carey was called. He didn't simply just pack his bags and go, just up and, and left. He, he actually raised support first. He started a missions agency. He planned. He prepared. And when he got there, he didn't just sit under a tree until the Lord kind of gave him a vision as far as what to do next. No, he labored. He strategized. He developed a, a ministry plan based upon the principles and priorities that he saw in Christ's ministry and of that of the early church, like we're reading about in the book of Acts. He preached, he taught, he developed leaders, he translated the Bible into indigenous languages, he took the gospel into new places. But just because he had ministry objectives, his ministry did not go according to plan. Despite all of his diligent effort, and despite that clear call that the Lord gave him, it was seven years before his first convert. There were countless setbacks. Over and over again, God was repeatedly redirecting his work. And yet through it all, the Lord used him greatly. 
And friends, I would actually encourage you to read this book, Faithful Witness by Timothy George about William Carey, or, or if you don't want to take time to read it, they actually made it into a movie called Candle in the Dark, which you can actually rent or purchase on Amazon. It would be well worth your time to learn more about this man and how the Lord used him. Well, just like William Carey, throughout the book of Acts, and even in our own lives, there's this dance between our priorities and God's prerogative. We are called to plan, we're called to be wise, we are called to actively and intentionally make God's priorities our priorities, and yet God has the right at any and every point in time to interfere with our plans and redirect our lives for his purposes. Cobblers can indeed become missionaries. Persecutors can become apostles who are given ministry objectives. But in reality, their ministry never goes according to plan or according to priority, but always according to God's plan and God's priority. And that's what we're going to see this morning in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. Our objectives are subject to God's directives. Our objectives are subject to God's directives. Now, friends, I worded it that way. Because it certainly applies to all areas of our lives, including your plans for the day, school, work, who you're going to marry, where you're going to live, how God calls you to live in this world with the life that he has given you. It applies to all of that. But ultimately, like William Carey or, or like Paul or Silas or Timothy or Lydia that we're going to read about in this text, I pray that it would lead you to a radical reorientation of your priorities and your plans to be God's priorities and God's plan. That just as we see in the life of William Carey or Paul or the church in Acts, it would ultimately lead to the making and maturing of many disciples from every nation. But friends, once those ministry priorities have been set for us, I also pray that you would be open at every single point to God's redirection because our objectives are subject to God's directives. And so let's see it in the text, Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. It says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they tried to come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, Setting sail for, from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed that there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. 
the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. In this passage, we clearly see that Paul has objectives. He has ministry priorities. He had a plan and a purpose, but those plans were subject to God's redirection. And so we want to spend our time considering the gospel priorities for us and for this church that are laid out in this passage, but we also want to be challenged to be open-handed to our, uh, with, regarding our priorities in light of God's overarching directives. And so first, let's identify the gospel priorities that we see in this text. Now, Paul and Silas set out on this second missionary journey, and we see them commit to the familiar pattern and priorities that we've seen so far in the book of Acts. They start out by engaging and evangelizing the lost, by establishing new believers in the faith. They go on to equip the church towards maturity in Christ, and they look towards expansion of that ministry through developing leaders and the missionary enterprise. Paul's goal here was not to develop a holy huddle of people who feel close to one another, who gather and spend time together, who sing songs and pray and eat food together and generally feel comfortable in one another's presence. How do I know that? Well, Timothy already had that in Lystra. Lydia already had that in Philippi. But when Paul and Silas came, they called them to something more. They're called to more than comfortable cultural Christianity. Called to more than a worldly view of community. Called to more than a regular ritual of worship. Paul didn't set out on this journey to help people to actualize their potential, to to help help them to simply live better lives. I mean, if you think about Timothy and, and you think about Lydia, their lives were already pretty good. I mean, Timothy is well thought of, well spoken of by the believers, not just in his hometown of Lystra, but even in neighboring communities. And Lydia, she's a wealthy woman, wealthy, religious, good person. She's got it together. Paul's ministry was not to champion social justice issues. Paul didn't strengthen churches by helping them with branding or, or by accommodating to the culture or approving their presentation of their worship services in order to create an atmosphere that is welcoming to the Holy Spirit. His agenda was not just to add ministry programs to what was already in place. And so that shouldn't be our priority either when we think about ministry. No, Paul told us why he wanted to embark on this second missionary journey last week when we looked at chapter 15, verse 36. He wanted to return and visit the brothers in every city where he and Barnabas had proclaimed the word of the Lord during that first missionary journey to see how they were. And so Paul's mission objective was to establish and equip the churches, to strengthen those churches in the faith and to help them to increase in numbers daily as they faithfully proclaim the gospel to those who do not know Christ. Paul's priority was on preaching and teaching because that's how you make and that's how you mature disciples in the one true faith. Not by entertainment, not by activity, not by helping others to feel better about themselves, but by helping them to deeply know, love, and follow Christ. Paul wanted to go and to strengthen them because he did not want them to fall back into their former manner of life, into the way of thought, the way that they lived, the values, the the ambitions, the desires they had before they learned Christ. He did not want to see them fall back into sin. He went because he did not want them to be deceived by false doctrine or to pervert the one true faith into something other than God's perfect design in it. 
And he did not want them to cave under the pressures of persecution, but to stand firm even in the face of overwhelming opposition. Friends, God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And so more and more people were hearing the gospel. And as more and more people were hearing the gospel, many more were coming to faith. And the church needed to be strengthened in order to help disciple them towards faithfulness to Christ. And so part of this discipleship process that Paul and Barnabas had embarked on was to develop leaders to train up faithful men who would be able to teach others also. That's what we see there in verses 1 through 3 with Timothy. Timothy was already a disciple from Lystra, right? City where Paul was stoned on his first missionary journey. Now think about this for a minute because you talk about making lemonade out of lemons. Paul went there and he was stoned and left for dead. And what does the Lord do with that? He starts a church. And not only does he start a church there, but the Lord raised up from among that church a young man who would be Paul's true child in the faith. There was no one Paul's heart like Timothy. And God did this because God's purposes, like we saw last week, are bigger than our own, so unexpected conflict can yield surprising result. Stoning led not only to a church, but a true son in the faith. And this son in the faith, Timothy, entered into following Christ with his eyes wide open. Because the guy that came and brought Christ to them was the same guy that was stoned and left for dead. And so when Timothy picked up and followed him, He knew what that meant, but that didn't stop him. Timothy was from a questionable upbringing, not by any fault of his own, but simply because his father was a Greek, but his mother was a believing Jew. And so it's likely that he felt very much like an outsider, and yet despite all of this, despite this potentially checkered past, he was still well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and even at Iconium. He had a good reputation. He was a man who was above reproach. And and that's really not surprising to us when we consider how Paul speaks of him in his other letters. Timothy was a man of deep conviction, an upstanding character. He loved Christ. He had a profound concern for the welfare of other believers, and he was a faithful servant of God. And friends, this was already evident in the churches before Paul ever arrived at Lystra. He was already affirmed by the churches. And so it's not surprising then that Paul wanted to take him along. But for Timothy, that opportunity to serve as a leader would require sacrifice, literally. Going with Paul means letting go of this familiar comfortable ministry where he had already been well thought of to enter into uncertainty, to enter into danger, to enter into the unknown, to be willing to go there for the cause of Christ, to leave family behind, to leave the familiarity of this safe and comfortable place in order to obey the command of Christ to make disciples of all nations. It would be difficult. He would endure trials that he never imagined He ended up in places that he never thought that he would end up. And yet, he would see God do far more abundantly than all that he would ever ask or think of. But this opportunity to be discipled into leadership by Paul would also result in him being circumcised, which he was selflessly willing to do. Now, you may kind of wonder, okay, why why on earth did Paul do that? Because we just talked about the Jerusalem Council and the decision that the Jerusalem Council made where they clarified that according to the work of God in Christ, in accordance with the Scriptures, Gentiles did not need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. And we see in verse 4 that that Paul is teaching that same sound doctrine, right? He's going, as they went on their way through these cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions. That's, that's the dogma, the decree or command. This is binding for the church from this point forward that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. And so if the command 
was that circumcision was not required, then why on earth are you circumcising Timothy? And if you're going to circumcise Timothy, why don't you circumcise Titus according to Galatians chapter 2? Well, it's because Titus was a Gentile. Timothy, because his mother was a Jew, would have been considered to be raised by, as a Jew by those Jewish folks. They were saying, look, your mom's a Jew, therefore you a Jew, you're a Jew. You need to be raised and, and follow the Jewish ways. And according to verse 3, the Jews in those places knew that his father was a Greek. And so what this meant was that's a stumbling block for them. This is a big deal, right? Wait, wait a minute. Are you you're telling me Timothy's an uncircumcised Jew? Man, I, I can't even begin to, to think and to process through this gospel that you're trying to share with me because Timothy is an uncircumcised Jew. How can that be? And so Paul and Timothy removed the issue. You see, Titus could not be circumcised as a Gentile because the gospel was at stake. You circumcise a Gentile, you're basically saying to the Gentile, no, it's Jesus and Judaism. But Timothy, a Jew, could be and was circumcised because the hearing of the gospel was at stake. For Titus, it was a matter of core conviction. It was a matter of what is the gospel. But for Timothy, it was simply a concession in order to leave no stumbling block to the gospel. You see, as John Newton once said, Paul was an iron pillar in the essentials. When it comes to the one true faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, he was unbending. But out of love, he was a reed in the non-essentials. Friends, not everything is a hill to die on. Not everything that we do here in this church here or in other churches maybe that you grew up in is a hill to die on. It's got to be that way. It's got to be the way we've always done it. This is the way it's supposed to be done. No. When it comes to matters of doctrine, absolutely, we are unbending. But when it comes to preaching that doctrine, when it comes to preaching that faith, there is a certain level of flexibility that we can have for that culture. This is why if you ever saw a picture of Hudson Taylor, right, the famous missionary to China, started a Chinese inland mission, he looked like a pale, wide-eyed Chinaman. I mean, he, he lived like they did, dressed like they did, ate what they ate, did what they did, but never in a way that would compromise the faith. You see, you don't need to be a biker to reach bikers for Jesus, but you might need to lose the suit and tie. The Lord can use a punk rocker mightily for Jesus, but he might need to lose the mohawk and the piercing for people to give him the time of day. And that's what's happening here with Timothy. So Paul and Timothy, they decided to remove the stumbling block. They thought to themselves, you know what, if they want to be offended, let them be offended by the gospel, not by the one who proclaims the gospel. For Titus to be circumcised, it would have distorted the gospel. For Timothy to be circumcised, it would give him more opportunities to preach the gospel. You understand the difference there? We want to live in such a way that we do not compromise the faith, not in life nor in doctrine, but we also want to live in a way that we leave no stumbling block. So in verse 4, they made their way through the cities, preaching, teaching, delivering this sound doctrine in observance to the council's decision. And we see the fruit of that in verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in number daily. 
You see, the, the ministry objective was a, a, achieved. Gospel growth was their priority. And so in verse 6, we see that they went through the regions of Phrygia and Galatia. And so more than likely what he's saying there is they made their way back. They, they backtracked all of the steps and finally made their way to Antioch and Pisidia, which is where this whole first missionary journey into Galatia began. So they effectively accomplished that original goal that Paul had established in wanting to go and strengthen the churches and to see how they were. And what do they do from there? They keep on going. They attempted to make their way east and north in verses 6 through 8 into new regions, the regions of Asia, Mysia, and up to Bithynia, but the Lord prevents them. And we're going to deal with that in a moment But for now, I I draw our attention to this to highlight the fact that the priority for gospel growth was outward. It was extending into new regions, new territories, new peoples. It was missional. It wasn't inward, focused just on, on the believers, but also in taking the gospel to unbelievers as well. They were actively, intentionally engaging, evangelizing, and expanding the mission in the power of the Holy Spirit in light of the Great Commission as they proactively sought to speak the word in different regions before concluding that God was actually directing them to preach the gospel in Macedonia. Either way, it's all outward. This was a mission that was characterized by their obedience to God and worship. And just as was their typical objective, when they did arrive in Philippi in verses 12 through 15, they started with those who were familiar and open to the gospel. We see that on the Sabbath... They sought out this group of gathered Jews and Gentile God-fearers at a place of prayer. More than likely, this group was so small that they didn't even have a synagogue. You have to have 10 Jewish men in order to start a synagogue. And there are no men even mentioned among this group. The group is comprised of women, and among whom is Lydia, this God-fearing Gentile. She's a wealthy woman, seller of purple goods, She's a good woman. She's a religious woman. And so they spoke. God opened her heart, and she was baptized along with her believing household. Now, I I draw our attention to this because as we continue through Acts chapter 16, there are three specific people who are mentioned for this ministry at Philippi. There's Lydia. There is the demon-possessed slave girl. And then there is the Philippian jailer. But notice here that when Paul went into Philippi, he didn't start out by going out to the streets to exercise demons. And nor did he go into the prison to try to convert the hardened jailer. Instead, where he went was to the most likely place where he would find an openness to the gospel where there was already a foundation that was laid that he could build upon. He went to the Jew first and then to the Greek, to those who were earnestly, though insufficiently, longing to worship God and moved outward from there. That's important for us when we think about who do we prioritize as far as taking the gospel to. Now, if the Lord brings these other people in your path, just like this, you know, they're going to continue on next time, and we're going to see they're passing along their way, and here's this demon-possessed girl, and she's, she's kind of pointing them out, and, and so they dealt with that when that came to you. That was God's providence in, in their lives, but their priority, their mission priority, was to start with those who they believed would be open. Guys, I, I say all this to make it clear that there was thought There was planning, there was intention that went into these missionary journeys, and that is not unspiritual. A lot of times people think if you plan, it's automatically unspiritual. Can't be of the Lord, can't be glorifying to God. If you set a plan in mind, you've got an objective, you've got a mission or vision or strategy, it's got to just kind of well up as we sit under a tree and pray and then all get visions and know what to do. 
No, gospel growth requires setting objectives, having strategies, putting priorities in place. We've seen that throughout the book of Acts. It is not unspiritual to plan. The problem with planning is when our objectives or our priorities don't line up with God's. Then it's on us to change. When we're spending our time on things that God doesn't ask us to, or when our priorities reflect the priorities of the world rather than the priority of making disciples of all nations. Notice that for each of the three main characters in our story, God calls each one of them to greater levels of faithfulness for gospel growth. Paul as an apostle, was called away from the safe, comfortable, and fruitful ministry in Antioch toward Galatia and beyond. Timothy was called away from Lystra, where he was well spoken of by all the brothers, to be developed by Paul to be a leader in churches for future generations to come. Lydia was called away from being a wealthy, religious, good person to someone who was truly faithful to the Lord. You see, no matter who they were, whether they were an apostle of Christ Jesus or a brand new believer, God was calling each and every one of them to move to the right towards greater and greater faithfulness, towards gospel growth. And he did that through the means of a gospel growth strategy for ministry. It didn't just happen. Wasn't that all Lydia needed to do was go down by that river and pray, and poof, she became a Christian. Each one of them was actively pursuing the work that God had promised and was doing in each and every one of them. So, friends, this is important for us because we can't just stop at words. It is great that every Sunday we pray for missions throughout the world. It's great that we gather and we talk about sharing the gospel with other people. But we can't just stop at words. We can't just stop with good but undisciplined intentions. But to actively take steps through the means that God gives us for gospel growth. Not just for ourselves, but to grow others as we engage and evangelize and establish and equip and expand the mission for the glory of Christ. In this context of thinking about missions, this is what it means to be a doer of the word and not simply a hearer so deceiving ourselves. We all have a part to play. Every single one of us, not just a select few, but every single one of us have a part to play in moving to the right and in helping others to move to the right, both locally and abroad. And that starts as God's plans and God's priorities become our plans and our priorities. And so, What do you need to reprioritize in order to make gospel growth and greater faithfulness your priority? What needs to change to make that possible? What steps, actual steps, do you need to take? What does it actually look like in this plan of discipleship that we see laid out in the book of Acts? What worldly priorities and plans that our culture expects of you to follow are getting in the way that you need to set aside in order to faithfully follow Christ? And friends, how is God calling us to do that together as a church? This is significant for each one of us. Now that we've seen God's directives for gospel growth and greater faithfulness and are beginning to sort of assess our priorities in light of them, we need to ask ourselves next whether or not our objectives are truly subject to God's directives. And so second, let's view gospel priorities in light of God's prerogative. 
You see, as good as it is for us to make plans, to set gospel priorities for our lives, God has every right to redirect them at any point in time. And he does. So for example, how many of us here planned 10 years ago to be right here right now? Anybody? No. And, and even when we look at this, right, with, with, we recognize that God clearly had to change and redirect our pre-established plans in order for us to be right here. You get that too, right? Not only did we end up here in ways that we did not expect, but, but we had all sorts of other ideas about where we would be, and God changed those so that we would end up here. You see that? Do you see that? Thank you. Just want to make sure, right? And so even that observation ought to tell us that though God does call us to plan and to set priorities, we should hold to those plans and priorities open-handedly. Your plans and your priorities being held to open-handedly. I once, I once thought about this, and I talked to my sister before she actually went to become a missionary over in Uganda. I said, you know, I recognize that, that even as I was looking at um, God's call on my own life and what comes next, that even as I was praying about God's call, I was holding my hands like this. Yes, they were open, but it was this idea of sort of catching hold of what I wanted. And so I took the active step to say, you know what, I'm going to hold my hands like this. Because then it's what the Lord places in my hand that I grab hold of and not what I'm trying to cling to. Not what I'm looking to sort of sift through. I'll let that other stuff that I don't want sift through my fingers, but I'm going to grab hold of that which I want. No, I need to, I need to come to this whole thing truly open-handedly. that we are to intentionally and actively pursue gospel growth and greater faithfulness, our posture should be sacrificial, submitted, spirit-led, and servant-hearted. I mean, just look at Timothy. Timothy was not planning to join up with Paul. That was not his life ambition. That was not his goal. Okay? He was not just kind of sitting there, twiddling his thumbs, hoping that Paul would come back to town with some sort of martyr's complex so that he can go and join up and hopefully die alongside Paul. That's not what he was wanting to do. He wasn't looking out the window, knife in hand, just kind of waiting so that he could fulfill his objectives and his goals and his life ambitions by being circumcised and following Paul. What was he doing? He was faithfully serving right where he was. Despite what people might have thought about him since he was a half-breed in some of their minds, he didn't let that stop them. He was still well thought of, not just in his own city, but in surrounding regions. Why? Because he was just being faithful to the Lord right where he was. And they could see his giftedness. They could see his concern. They could see his heart, and they, they affirmed him. It was not Timothy that said, hey, Paul, pick me, pick me. I want, I want to go with you. It was Paul that said, you know what? I want you to go with me. I want you to go with me, and guess what else? I'm going to have to circumcise you. But he went. He went out of love because he was willing to follow Christ and not his own ambitions. He willingly submitted himself to Paul's leadership, left his mother and his grandmother and his good name that was there, to strengthen churches and to preach the gospel to those who had not heard. Now why? And why, why, would, why would Timothy, why would you give up your life right now as you know it to follow Christ in taking the gospel to where he has not been heard? Why would you take on that risk, that uncertainty? Why would you submit yourself to the leadership of another in order to grow in your ability to teach and train and disciple others? Why would Paul go back to this place where they stoned him and left him for dead? It's because we believe in the power of God to save. 
That we believe that Christ's life, death, and resurrection actually accomplished something. That the gospel is the power of God for redemption from sin. That it is the power to reconcile those who were living as enemies to now be God's beloved children. And that that power recreates us to give us new hearts, new lives, new minds that can now live for him. And we know this because it's happened in us and we want that for others. We go because Christ has called us to go and to make disciples of all nations. We go because God's priority is to have a people for his own possession that is comprised of people from every tongue and every tribe and every people and every language. We go because we believe that the gospel is given to all and that when we preach it, some will actually hear and be saved. That it will be effective for them when we go and proclaim it. We go because it is God's priority it is mankind's greatest need it is the only hope and we know that faith comes only through hearing and hearing the word of Christ we go because Christ has promised that he would be with us whenever we go and wherever we go to the very ends of the age we go because the gospel is our only hope but the ultimate reason why we go is with a passion to see the glory of God extend to the nations. That's why we go. Timothy, Paul, and Silas, their plans changed because this mission was God's prerogative. It was not theirs. It was his. That what he has been what he is and what he will be doing in Christ, this will continue until Christ's return and Revelation chapter seven, verses nine through 12 is fulfilled. It says, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they all fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Friends, that's why we plan. That's our priority. That's why we sacrifice. That's why we submit to be called away from this life as we know it to greater growth and faithfulness. And so we go. As we go, we make plans. As we go, we set gospel priorities and we labor towards that end. But we know that it doesn't go according to plan, does it? I mean, look at Paul. Paul started out simply wanting to go and strengthen the churches in Cyprus and Galatia with Barnabas. But this whole disagreement with him and Barnabas changed the way that he thought he was going to do that. He did end up working with Silas. That was good. Persuading Timothy to join in him in this work. In verse 5, they were able to strengthen the churches throughout Galatia and many more disciples were made. So that was good. That's what they were hoping for. But as they were attempting to extend the mission into new territories, verse 6 says, as they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak a word in Asia, and when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. And this is the idea of repeatedly attempting. They did, it just like, it's not like they tried one time. Oh, that didn't work. I guess we won't go there. No, they were trying repeatedly to do that, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And so passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Now, friends, we don't know exactly what this looked like. 
Were they physically locked up? I mean, did, did the Holy Spirit come upon them and they just like frozen in time, couldn't move? Did they receive a, an audible voice from the Lord that said, nope, don't go there. You're not allowed. Or did the Lord use more normal means to direct them? Is it possible that in looking back, they were able to see that through some very normal means that the Holy Spirit was preventing them from going on? Things like persecution or a lack of receptivity to the gospel there, or knowing that Paul made it his ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ had already been named, lest he build on someone else's foundation, did they travel to those areas to find that somebody was already at work there? And he didn't want to build on that foundation, or that somebody was going to. Because here's the thing, what happened to, what happened to the apostle Peter after the Jerusalem council. He disappears from Acts. We know that he ended up in Rome, but how did he get there? I ask this because later on, when the apostle Peter wrote 1 Peter, guess which churches he wrote to? Churches in Asia, Mysia, and Bithynia. So could it be that the apostle Peter or someone else was already doing a work there? I don't know. It's possible. But clearly, Paul had a plan. God had something else in mind. And God directed, redirected Paul, Silas, and Timothy on. But friends, it was never a point at which Paul was just sitting idly by, just kind of waiting to hear what comes next. It's not as though he was just kind of like asking the Lord, please give me a vision for what I should do. No, he was actively pursuing the mission of Christ that he had been given according to wisdom until the Lord redirected, refocused that ambition. Obviously, God had a different plan in mind that went far beyond the thoughts and intentions of Paul. God had another way that he was going to get the gospel to Asia and Mysia and Bithynia, and he did that. Praise the Lord. But God's intention was for Paul to go to Macedonia. And we see it in verse 9. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now people have all sorts of thoughts and questions about this vision. I mean, is this part of our missionary strategy? Should we just wait for a vision to direct us as to where we should go and and who we should speak to? And who was this Macedonian man? There's all sorts of ideas from the outlandish, well, this was Alexander the Great, which is funny. Well, how... Because, I mean, how else would you know that this man was a Macedonian if it wasn't Alexander the Great? Well, I mean, the guy said, why don't you come over to Macedonia and help us? Or they'll go to the other end, the other extreme, to the most unsupernatural idea that you can think of. That this vision of a man was either Luke or a companion of Luke. And they suggest that because in verses 1 through 8, if you look at the pronouns of verses 1 through 8, it's all they, right? Paul, Silas, Timothy. They, 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 they. Verse 10, it changes to we. So this is where Luke enters into Paul's missionary journey, right there at Troas. And so maybe, maybe it's just Luke or or Luke's companion. But it says This was a vision of the Lord. Now, I would buy that if, say, Luke's companion was a beautiful woman, but it says clearly there was a vision of a man, and I just don't think men are that pretty, so probably not a vision of the Lord in that sense. No, and and I don't think, it seems strange to me that if it was Luke or Luke's companion, that Luke would refer to that person in that way. I understand this to be a God-given vision of a man. And so once 
Paul had seen this vision, and in light of the fact that the Holy Spirit had not opened the door for them to go into Asia or Mysia or Bithynia, they concluded that God was calling them to preach the gospel in Macedonia. You see, even here, this vision was not divorced from reason. This is not some cocky, well, I know because God told me. I had a vision from the Lord, and there I'm to go. No, what we see is that they gathered together, and they considered all the factors and arrived at a distinct, intelligent decision. And so, if we're going to be open to God's redirection, should we then expect or anticipate visions like this? Is this the way that God operates? Right, just this is how... Chad, how did you come to be here? What vision did the Lord give you of a, of a man holding a pe- you know, corn in Illinois to say, come to Urbana and preach the gospel to us here? I didn't have one. Unless you count Jim Smith as that vision of a man. He would laugh hysterically if he were here right now. But <laughs> No, um, every time visions are presented in Scripture, which are few and far between, No one is seeking after them. It's not as though they're waiting, just kind of like, need a vision from the Lord as far as what to do next. I don't really know. Right? Paul was not asking God for a vision of what to do. Okay, God, I'm out of options here. Where should I go? And God says, okay, I'll give you this vision so you can know where to go next. It's not as though Peter was like, okay, I don't really know what to do. I'm going to go up on this rooftop here. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask God to send down a curtain with a bunch of of unclean animals on it, and by him sending me that, then I'll know that I'm to actually go and take the gospel to Gentiles. It's not as though Paul was asking Jesus to give him a vision as to whether or not he should stop persecuting Christians and become one. No, visions are God's prerogative, which is why we don't use psychedelic drugs or, or, or we manipulate physiological elements like food, water, sleep, or heat in order to generate visions. But from time to time, the Lord has used them. And nor do we go treasure hunting. Are you familiar with this concept? Some people do this, right? They gather together, they start praying, they ask God to give them a vision of a particular person. Oh, you know, I see a man, and he's got a bald head and a beard, and uh, he's wearing flannel. And uh, I, sh- I should have started describing somebody here, but I didn't. So, not, not flannel, he's wearing a hoodie. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, and then they go out and find that person. Um, so, are we supposed to do something, something like that? The answer, again, is no, because if you look at this, what did Paul see? Paul saw a Macedonian man. Who did Paul seek out when he first got to Philippi? Paul sought out a group of Jewish and God-fearing women. And you've got to ask yourself, why Philippi? I mean, why not Neapolis? Because Neapolis was the first Macedonian city that he would have arrived at. Why, why not there? Why did he go on into Philippi? Well, it's because Philippi, according to God's or, uh, Paul's pre-planned ministry objectives, Philippi was a leading city and a Roman colony. So it was a leading city. It was large enough to have a Jewish population and a political enough city with roads clearly leading to Rome. And so God was clearly directing them to Macedonia, which was not what they expected. But even there, they were open and God was changing their plans. They were still making intelligent, reasonable, and planned decisions to go first to Philippi. Guys, this is important because spirit-led does not mean that you sit there and you pray until the Lord moves. It actually means following the Spirit-given directives that we have in God's Word as we plan and pursue the mission while continually being open to the clarification, redirection, and sharpening of the Lord. Having objectives, but continually subjecting them to the Lord's directives. And so, when 
our lives are truly subject to God's prerogative. It's displayed in sacrifice and submission and being led by the Spirit. But before we leave this text, there's one more person we have to consider briefly. God's prerogative for Lydia was her salvation. A salvation that resulted in the surety of the faith and in a servant-hearted support of gospel mission. Verse 13, And on the Sabbath day they went outside the gate to the riverside where they supposed it was a place of prayer. And they sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, actually a city in Mysia, one of the places where they didn't go. A seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Friends, Lydia was a wealthy religious woman, but she was not saved. It was not in her plans on that Sabbath morning to meet up with Paul, Silas, and Timothy as she gathered with a group of women to pray by the river. But she listened. It was not her intention to convert from her Jewish religion to the one true saving faith. But God had been using all of that leading up to it to prepare her heart so that when she heard the gospel, the Lord opened her heart so that she would receive it by faith. She and her whole household received the good news of Jesus Christ, and so now she wanted to follow him. She was baptized there in that river, not according to plan, as a public profession that she had been transformed from a works-based worshiper of God to a saved-by-grace follower of Christ. Once she was not, but God himself made it possible for Paul to judge her, now faithful to the Lord. Friends, God is doing or work all around us. And I wonder if he's doing a similar work in your heart. Has he been preparing you? Has there been this, this interest, this intrigue, this desire to learn more about him? And you're motivated to worship him in ways that didn't make sense to you at first, but now they're, they're increasingly doing so. Do you sense that, that God is beginning to open your heart to faith in Christ? You finding yourself longing for him? Are you sure that Christ died and rose again to free you from your sin? And that you are now a child of God, saved not because of your worship, but instead you want to worship because God has saved you by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to talk to somebody after the service. Talk to me or someone next to you. But this is the way the Lord works in our hearts to lead us to faith in Christ. But Lydia's story didn't end right there because her faith changed her. She went from joining some women once a week for prayer to urging Paul and company to stay at her home. And this is beyond hospitality here. She was a well-to-do woman, but now she had this desire to attend to their needs with a servant's heart. Her home actually became the gathering place and the missionary outpost for the church at Philippi the very hub of daily ministry. She used her wealth and her resources to support the mission of Christ. And though she herself did not go, she served and supported those who did. So you see, our objectives are subject to God's directives. We see that in every single person in this account. 
Our priorities and our plans are intended by God to include gospel growth and greater, greater levels of faithfulness with our hearts are, that are submissive, sacrificial, spirit-led, servant-hearted, mission-supporting, and sure in Christ. We don't set our own priorities for our lives and then we try to bend God's directives to those. No. We submit to God's prerogative. We make Christ's ambition our ambition as we live every day in dependence upon and under the direction of God. And we do this because our objectives are subject to God's directives. Let's pray together.